It's a, it's a good question. And there are those who have answered it down in, through, the, through the years by saying, no, that's what, that's what he's saying. We can't ever take any kind of vow. So they go into the, into the courtroom. The courtroom says, you should swear on the Bible that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but. They say, forget it, we're not doing that. And really, actually, they kind of undo the, the, any benefit from that because then their, their testimony is viewed as worthless, so they can't even do a helpful thing and, and properly testify. But anyway, right? Essentially, I believe what Jesus is saying here, I believe it's borne out scripturally, that he's saying, you may make no vow, ultimately, that isn't before God. No oath, no sub-oath. Welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 33 through 37, Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Yes, please stand with me and we'll read the scriptures. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make your hair, one hair, white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Please be seated. Do you take this woman to be your wedded wife? to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Do you promise to love her as Christ loved the church? Do you promise to honor and keep her for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health and forsaking all others? Keep yourself only for her so long as you both shall live. You guys are familiar with that. It's a vow, isn't it? It's a vow of marriage. And the answer is supposed to be, assuming it's the right person, I do. Right? That's the answer to the vow. And it's a vow made before what? The church and before a holy God. Those things are very clear in marriage. It is one of the most common vows that we have in our country. However, it is also one of the most commonly broken vows in our country. And we've just been discussing the issue of divorce and remarriage and adultery. And so it is no accident, I believe, that Jesus now moves on to another vital part of really all relationship, and that's commitment, not only in marriage, but also as we make vows to one another, as we make commitments to each other, as we call the Lord to view those vows or other things that we must learn how and, and we must in our society and, and as, as representatives of the Lord, we must be honest and we must be truthful. And so Jesus is going to get at a fundamental aspect of being a believer, of being a, a member of the kingdom, and that is that there must be truth. We are to be people who exhibit and who are characterized by truth in every place. Fortunately, our world does not demonstrate that. 
and ever increasingly, there are lies from, uh, from, from everywhere. There are lies from our politicians, lies from our justice system, lies everywhere. And this is no surprise to us, is it? Because Satan is the father of lies. And increasingly, our world is run by lies. If believers are truly to be salt and light in a tasteless world, then we must speak the truth in every situation. So what we'll learn this morning is that every word we speak is heard and witnessed by a just and holy God, and therefore we must be careful to speak clearly and truthfully at all times. Every word we speak is heard and witnessed by a just and holy God, and therefore we must be careful to speak clearly and truthfully at all times. Remember where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus began by really discussing the, the characteristics necessary to enter into the kingdom and that are part or that every person in the kingdom, the characteristics that they have, the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn and gentle and those things. Then he began to talk about the example of believers in the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And then Jesus began in verse 20 to challenge those who would be in the kingdom to understand that their righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, who were the litmus test of righteousness for that day. Religious righteousness was defined by the Pharisees. Unfortunately, not so much by Scripture and more by the Pharisees and their habits, their patterns, and their teaching. So he says, the highest litmus test that you have in front of you that you can see, the Pharisees, your righteousness is going to have to be greater than that if you would be in the kingdom or if you would demonstrate yourself to be kingdom citizens. It is not the means to enter in. It is the means of demonstrating citizenship. And so he began then to speak of a series of things that the Pharisees seemed to feel like they had taken care of. It really starts, he's, he's beginning with the Ten Commandments. Right? He's not taking them in any particular order, but he talks right away about committing murder. And of course, the Pharisees would have said, we're not murderers. We have never physically killed anyone. But Jesus says what? You have anger in your heart, and so you are guilty as murderers. Well, then he begins with another of the Ten Commandments, adultery. And certainly they would have considered themselves to be uh, guiltless of that particular sin. We have not committed adultery. We haven't broken our marriage vows. And yet what did Jesus say? If you lust in your heart, then you are guilty of that, of breaking that law. And then very closely related to that, the whole issue of, of marriage and divorce. And the fact that they, they said, well, we're not committing adultery, and yet they were, being, they were engaging in unbiblical divorces, handing out a certificate of divorce and saying, hey, we're fine, when actually that was causing them to commit adultery as they got remarried, or to put into an adulterous state those who got remarried that they had divorced. So in every way, Jesus says, you cannot take your external legalistic standard of what you believe the law to be, claim yourself righteous, and then move on, when in every way you are violating God's law internally, and in fact, in many ways, externally as well. Well, now he comes to another one, seemingly a, a very simple issue, right? the issue of taking oaths or making vows. And it's not something we do so much today, but as I mentioned, we still have vows. You, we make marriage vows. If you go into court, you have to make a vow to tell the whole truth and, and nothing but the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So it's not as common as it used to be. So this is, we have a little bit more difficult time bringing this, you know, bring the universal principles to us today. But the whole issue underlying, fundamentally underlying the issue of making oaths is that we tell the truth. And that certainly needs very little work to bring into our common experience because we are born liars. That is who we are apart from Christ. And so he's going to begin to address this underlying ungodliness of lying and of, of falsity that the Pharisees were involved in. And he begins as he normally does by addressing teaching that they were giving and claiming to live by He's going to, uh, not so much directly in the text, but really by allusion or by, as we'll see from other passages of scripture, he's going to expose their misunderstanding of 
that very commandment that they are, are basing their behavior on, and then he's going to bring his own teaching to bear as he's done each time. That is really fulfilling, fleshing out the nature of the Old Testament teaching. So first, let's look at the Pharisees' teaching on this issue of vows, or essentially making promises. I promise you I'll do this. I promise you I won't do that. These other things. So in verse 33, again, so he's just moving on a list of issues that he's addressing, areas where the righteousness of the disciples has to be greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. And as we've said before, the idea there of that the ancients were told, as opposed to it is written, seems to indicate the, a, the taking of a biblical principle, which this first part certainly is, and really then the enmeshing of it with human tradition and the externalizing it and legalizing of it. So as it moved down, the ancients, the fathers, the forefathers of the Pharisees had really taken this and, and twisted the meaning of it. Begins with a biblical command and has been twisted by the Pharisees and Jesus is going to restore it back to where it needs to be. Because if we, if we look at this, yeah, the ancients were told that, their forefathers, and certainly it's stated in the Bible as well, that you shall not make false vows. And so the, the Pharisees' teaching on vows certainly was, it seems, that no false vows in God's name are to be made. And this is scriptural. The, the whole idea of a false vow is either to swear falsely, that is, to swear you know something or that something you're saying is true when you know it isn't, or to make a promise or to make a vow that you don't keep, whether you know that or not ahead of time. It can be either one, a false vow. Or it can even be testifying about things you have done that you haven't actually done. It can work in all those ways, a false vow. And he says, they say, the ancients were told and the Pharisees were preaching, apparently, that you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. That would be Yahweh. It's curious here, but as, as we understand from the Old Testament, the God of, of Israel, you are to fulfill your vows. You are to make false vows. And again, we know this is true from the Old Testament. Let's just look at the Old Testament law for a moment, and then we'll try to understand how the Pharisees were misunderstanding this. Because again, Jesus is very cryptic here. He doesn't give a lot of explanation. But the, the laws given in the Old Testament were very clear. Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear falsely by my name, as so as to profane, profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. You shall not swear falsely. And in fact, it is most likely that the, the uh, commandment in the third commandment in the 10 commandments, that you shall not take the name of the Lord, your God in vain, that that's really actually what it means. It has less to do with simply swearing and much more to do with bringing God to witness in ways that cause his name to be dragged through the mud, that profane his name. Even taking the name Christian and not honoring God is, is taking the name of the Lord in vain. You don't have to use it as a swear word, although many do. It is to profane the name of the Lord by making him witness to or party to something unholy. And that's what, they were, what, what the commandment in Leviticus 19.12 is not to do. You shall not make a promise, bring, call my name as witness, and then break your promise or be telling a lie or refuse to fulfill the very thing that you said you were going to do. Numbers 30 verse 2. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. And he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, 23. You shall be careful to perform what goes out of you from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. And then a favorite of mine that I often read at weddings before we move to the time of making vows, Ecclesiastes 5, verse, verses 4 through 6. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. And so I'll read that at a, we at a wedding 
as a reminder to those who are making those commitments that as believers, believers wedding, that they are making those before a just and holy God, that he is being called to witness those things and they are to pay what they vow. In fact, it wasn't too long ago, I had a couple sitting in my office and they had made those vows. They were wrestling in their marriage and they were considering dissolving the marriage. And I sat them down and I said, let's read again the nature of making a vow before a holy God. Do not play the fool. You have made this vow in his presence. Do not profane his name. By the Lord's grace, they took that seriously and began again to renew their efforts to work upon their marriage and with a, a greater understanding because our world doesn't understand vows at all. They break them with impunity, as we shall see did the Pharisees as well. And as do most people. We make all kinds of vows and promises that we have never, never intend to keep at all. But scripture says, if you make a vow, <clears throat> and particularly if you bring God to bear, his name to bear, then you will fulfill it. Now, you're aware of some vows in scripture. And in fact, we'll look at one rash vow. You might remember a man named Jephthah, and he made a vow. He was a judge. In Judges chapter 11, verse 29, he'd been called by God to deliver the people of Israel. Now, the Spirit of God came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he went to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give the sons of Amnon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. What was he thinking? So I'll go and Lord, if you give me success and I defeat the sons of Ammon, when I come back, whatever comes out of my house, I'm going to offer it as a sacrifice. We can only assume that, that he thought that it would be an animal of some sort, clearly. And so he, he just, maybe that was natural. I don't know. They sent the sheep out when Jephthah came home. I don't know. Because I have no idea why he would make this, but he did. And you know the rest of the story, don't you? He comes home, the Lord fulfilled, answered Jephthah's prayer and, and listened to his vow, as it were, brought him home in peace. And who came out the door? His daughter. Remember, Jephthah wails in anguish and then fulfills his vow. There's some debate in scripture as to whether he actually burned her as a sacrifice or whether he then, he simply required that she be kept as a virgin, as, as sacred unto the Lord for the rest of her life. I, I lean towards that she was actually killed, but there's much debate there. I'll let you do the work. Nonetheless, either way, right, it meant radical changes for his daughter and he lived up to that vow. Now that was a rash vow. And yet you see how seriously Jephthah took it and understood that the Lord would take it as well. By the way, Jephthah wasn't a particularly savory man. And yet he lived up to his vow. He had made it before Yahweh. Well, let's talk about a, a better vow in the, in the Old Testament. How about Hannah? You remember Hannah? Hannah had no children. And she would go up to the temple. She was faithful. She and her husband. And in 1 Samuel 1.11, she was up and she was praying. And you remember that Eli was watching her pray. She was so moved in her heart. She was praying without speaking. And he thought she was drunk. Maybe it was, well, I won't, I won't go into it. Eli was not a particularly godly man either. But she was actually making a vow to the Lord. And it says she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. And you know what happened? The Lord was gracious. He listened to Hannah and she went back home and he provided her a son. And how easy it would have been to say, this is my only son. The Lord didn't, he doesn't really require me to take him, to take, you know, to give him up to the Lord, to take him back to the temple and turn him over. He's my only son. Surely I can get around this somehow. But Hannah, it doesn't appear that she even considered that. Certainly maybe in her heart of hearts she did. 
But she faithfully weans the child, brings him back, and he becomes what? Samuel, the great Samuel of the Old Testament, a mighty prophet who ushers in the time of the kings and anoints David himself. That's a good vow and one that, that she fulfilled. But she took it seriously in matters that were intensely personal and very difficult to fulfill. That's the Old Testament command. You might think, well, I mean, if the Pharisees were teaching that, that's good stuff. Well, they were teaching that, but we get a little window into what else they were teaching that undermined that. We don't get it in Matthew chapter 5. Again, Jesus is apparently appealing to things that were well known about the Pharisees. He doesn't necessarily need to go into more detail. Well, he does later on turn to Matthew chapter 23. And we will get, so this is, they, they were saying, essentially what it seems like the Pharisees were saying, no false vows in God's name, However, there were levels of deceit in other names. Now, see, if you, if you vow before God, you'd better pay that. The scripture's clear. But it seems that they invented a whole other system of making vows where they could make the vow and not pay. So they could look all spiritual and say, look how righteous we are. We're making vows and we're making promises. And it's kind of like they had the finger behind their back. My fingers are crossed. We'll see it here. It's, it's actually totally ridiculous. It's childish. But hear me, this is what legalism does. Legalism externalizes the law of God, and instead of making things more holy, it just leaves more levels for sin. That's what it does. And so you can sin in all kinds of other ways that aren't specified in the legality, and you actually become more sinful, not less. And sometimes it gets ridiculous. We went to Amish country. We, we called the camp. It was, I think it was like five, five years ago, six years ago. We called it Amish Adventure, kind of an oxymoron. Um, but, but nonetheless, so, so we, went, we, we went to Amish country, and there were some who were quite enamored of the Amish culture, and so they were you know, hoping to find great things. And it was beautiful, and the farms were wonderful, and it was a neat time. But what we discovered by the guy that was taking us through that is the underlying system of oppressive legalism that drives their entire life, and it's ridiculous. I mean, you can ride a bike that has, that has wheels, and you can use the me mechanics of the bike. Of course, it can't be powered except by you, but you can't put, at least in this particular sect of uh, where the Amish were, you can't put any kind of rubber tires on it because that's too much comfort. Well, who makes that kind of rule? Well, they have a whole, they have a ruling group of elders when, when somebody decides something is wrong, somebody complains, that person's getting too much pleasure, or that's too easy, or that's too close to being mechanized. Well, they go to this group of elders and they make a ruling, and they just invent it. Well, it's like this because of this, because they don't have any more biblical principles. It is so close to the Pharisees. And there were many there who were pretty disillusioned about the nature of Amish, what is called faith, but essentially was a, a works righteousness legalism. That's all it was. Very, very oppressive. Well, I haven't even gotten to my text. Matthew 23. Here's what the Pharisees did. And Jesus confronts them. He says, woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. Matthew 23, 16. You fools and blind men, what is more important, the gold of the temple that, or the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, said the Pharisees. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus is saying, nice try. You can't lay all these different, why? Well, I, I, I didn't fulfill that because I only swore by the altar, not the offering. Or I swore by the offering, not the altar. No, I swore by the temple, not the gold. So I don't have to do that. No, sorry. I know I'm supposed to repay you that debt, but I swore by the gold on the temple, not the temple. So I don't have to do it. I, I came on difficult times. It'd be really hard for me to repay you. But remember, I didn't swear by God's 
name odd, you see it? So they would very rarely swear anything by God's name, if at all, because they understood that was binding. And then they invented all these other things to swear on so that they would look spiritual. The temple, the altar, the offerings. And Jesus is going, this is ridiculous. I mean, you can't just, you can't just pick and choose one piece of it. And he brings it all the way back because he's about to in Matthew chapter five to the fact that God sees it all. It's all God's. And so if you swear by anything, what are you really doing? You're swearing by the name of God. Nice try, Pharisees. Nice try to externalize that. But before we get too hard on the Pharisees, when was the last time you told what you called a little white lie or you deflected something that someone said to you and made it seem like you were something that you weren't and you had a good justification for it? Well, if they find that out, then they're, you know, they won't be my friend. Or if my parents find that out, I won't get to do this thing. Or my, my religious reputation will take, a, will take a hit if the congregation finds that out. So no one can know. I have a good reason. And God wouldn't, I mean, I didn't swear that before God. I, you know, God. God's not going to hold me responsible for this little white, whatever, or this little shade of truth. You know, you call your boss and, and you're, you're 45 minutes late and you tell him, oh, I'm so sorry, I had a flat tire. And you did. The only problem is you were already half an hour late. It's convenient I forgot to tell him that. I didn't wake up this morning. Or, you know, I got up late this morning. What you forgot to tell him was that you stayed up way too late last night. Uh, and then you got up and you just refused to get to work. Whatever it be, guys, there's a million ways that we do this. Don't think that we don't take our truth-telling and make it external and legalistic so that we can make all kinds of gradations of truth. That's what we do. We don't, we're not, we don't swear too much anymore. Although I, I will say that certainly I've heard people, even with their marriage vows, well, you know, I mean, that's not, that's not really, I wasn't really before God. I mean, he's not going to hold me to that because this is really hard. And, and we don't love each other. So I'm certainly, I mean, that's not what God meant. That's not what I meant when I said, God, I'll, I'll, I'll say I do. I meant something else. See, I had my fingers crossed. That's what the Pharisees were saying, and it was devastating. Now, do you see why maybe he's discussing this right after he talks about marriage? Pharisees were doing that. Yeah, I know we made a vow, but it doesn't matter. It was, it was, it was, not, it was not a binding vow. And they were doing this all over the place and calling themselves very spiritual. If you read the writings of the day, which I have not, but the commentaries thankfully helped me see some of these things, you'll find that they had, again, this whole system of vows that was laid out in very intense detail, which Jesus alludes to in Matthew 23. So that's what we're talking about. Oh yeah, if you, if you swear by Yahweh, you better do that. So let's swear by something else so that we don't have to. Well, Jesus is not going to take kindly to this. So back in Matthew chapter five, as with all things, he's going to expose what they really were supposed to be doing. And he does it, as Jesus often does, with a very stark statement. Remember, Jesus very often speaks in black and white. This is how it is. doesn't mean that there aren't any nuances to it. In fact, remember when he said, that whoever divorces except for adultery and remarries commits adultery? Well, we know that there is another exception to that, Right? And Paul brought it on later. So Jesus often spoke in very direct terms for purposeful reason and brought the principle to bear in a very strong way. And that's what he does here. Because look what he says. He says, but I say to you. Now, Jesus is saying, you're misunderstanding the law. I'm going to fulfill it as it were by letting you know what it actually means. But I say to you, make no oath at all either by heaven or for it is the throne of God or by earth for it is the footstool of his feet or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair black or white. So Jesus' teaching on vows is this, make no oaths at all. Now does that mean 
that no one could ever bring God to bear or witness in any kind of transaction. Well, that's going to be difficult because we're going to see in the New Testament that other people did still, and we do it occasionally today as well. Marriage, should we say marriage is not a vow before a holy God? Should we not call God to witness because of what Jesus said? It's a, it's a good question. And there are those who have answered it down in, through, the, through the years by saying, no, that's what, that's what he's saying. We can't ever take any kind of vow. So they go into the, into the courtroom. The courtroom says, you should swear on the Bible that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but. They say, forget it, we're not doing that. And really, actually, they kind of undo the, the, any benefit from that because then their, their testimony is viewed as worthless. So they can't even do a helpful thing and, and properly testify. But anyway, right? Essentially, I believe what Jesus is saying here, I believe it's borne out scripturally, that he's saying, you may make no vow, ultimately, that isn't before God. No oath, no sub-oath, no oath on temples or on things like that. If you make an oath, it's before God, you need to know that. And in general, there's no need for you to make an oath at all. You don't have to call on God's name because he's already witness. He's already party to it. There's no need to cry out, Lord, be witness to this for most things. Because he already is, and that's well known to you, and it's binding whether you call him as witness or not. Ah, oh, no, that's powerful. It doesn't matter if you said, God, you know, I'll do this if you do this. If you say, I'll do this, it is binding to you whether you call God to witness or not. And, it's so, and therefore, we need to be very careful. And even broadening that out, as we will see, that leads again to the whole issue of telling lies versus always telling the truth. That's the broader principle underlying that. We always tell the truth because every word that we say, we are held accountable for by God. Every vow is a vow to God, Matthew 12, 36. But I say to you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. There are probably no more chilling words in all the Bible than that. How many words do you speak during the day? It's not a single careless word that you will not give an accounting for in the day of judgment. Now, as believers... We're certainly grateful that our accounting, as it were, comes with the, uh, the judgment seat of Christ, that those words then that were not pleasing to the Lord will be burned up and that we will not be burned up in hell. But imagine an unbeliever with that piling on day after day after day of words that bring judgment. It says, for by your words in Matthew 12, 36, you will be, or 37, by your words you'll be justified, by your words you will be condemned. So Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, and I would agree with him here, that what Jesus is saying is, Certainly not using God's name as a curse word. I, you, know, you certainly would never use it in that kind of vow. Using anything other than God's name in a solemn oath that you would not appeal to anything else, no sub-oaths so that you can then you can, you know, undo it. And not to use oaths in ordinary conversation. You're not just constantly throwing out an oath here and there. You know, God should witness this. Okay, why do I say that? Because you might still be going, hmm, I don't know. So her, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. It's one of the reasons that I would say that certain kinds of oaths that is acceptable to make them because God set himself sets an example in relationship to human oaths in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16. says, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. I think speaking in, in general where there can be a positive appeal to God as an end to dispute. 17, in the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. God swore on his own name. It doesn't seem like it's entirely inappropriate to swear or to make an oath when God's name is involved, when it's a weighty matter, when it's something that, that, is, that is needed. Well, 
Let's turn to Matthew 26 to see another place where Jesus himself allows himself to be placed under oath. This is very interesting. Matthew 26. For those who say, look, we, Jesus says you can't be under any oath. Well, did he follow that himself? Is that what he really meant? Matthew chapter 26, verse 63. Jesus is on trial. And the context here is that he's been on trial all night. They're constantly bringing witnesses to bear who are telling lies. None of them can be found to be saying the same thing. And so, and he, so he answers nothing. Jesus doesn't respond to any of the accusations at all. False witnesses all. And so he does not respond. But look what he does in verse 63. The high priest gets fed up. Matthew 26, 63. Says, but, and he says, but Jesus kept silent. Because he just asked, what is it that these men are testifying against you? Do you not answer? Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. What did he just do? He put him under oath. He said, I'm calling God to witness here. Answer me. Now, you would think if oaths are inappropriate or you could never be under one, what would Jesus say? Sorry. He would continue silent, but he doesn't. Look what he does. This is the one time he responds. God has called his witness, and it's fascinating that he responds here. I mean, I think it's just absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, the high priest doesn't know what he's doing, but remember, the high priest would almost never swear by God at all. This one does, and Jesus goes, okay, you want me to swear? I will. Here's what you're going to hear about who I am under oath. Woo. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. There was no one else that would testify that Jesus was God except God himself. And so when the high priest called upon God, Jesus said, all right, I'll answer that one. I testify, God testifies, and you will see me coming. Now, that's powerful in and of itself, but the issue of oaths there, don't, doesn't, Jesus doesn't seem to be saying you could never be under one, particularly when it's related to God himself. And Jesus answers when that is the case. Now, this is also the example of the Apostle Paul, who brought God's name to bear in an, in an oath-taking sense. 2 Corinthians one twenty three. But I call God as witness to my soul. I mean, there's, that's there's no more stronger oath than that. And because he's going to make an he's going to make an assertion about his truthfulness. Remember, oaths were often used for that. I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. That's Second Corinthians one twenty three. Say so you wouldn't know that, but I'm calling God to witness. This is true. So if Jesus was prohibiting any kind of oath at all, particularly in the name of God Himself then Paul would be sinning here. And there's, there's, that doesn't seem to be the case at all. In fact, in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul does a similar thing. You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. So I think by the example of Scripture, we can take Jesus' words here as, the, as a general principle, much like a proverb. Do not take oaths lightly. Essentially, the only person to take an oath, the only place to take one is in the name of God himself, and generally speaking, don't take them at all because God is witness anyway. Seems to be the teaching. And, and by the way, that seems to flesh itself out because all the examples that Jesus uses are what? Less than using the name of God himself that they were trying to use to get out of it. And he's going to say, you're actually using the name of God when you do that. Those are the examples that he's going to give. So let's look at those back in Matthew 5. He's going to use the common examples, it seems, that the Pharisees used. We saw some of them in Matthew 23. Now in Matthew 5. Back there, he says, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God. Nice try. You know, I'm not going to swear by God. But I'll just, by heaven, I will accomplish this for you. Nice try. Who made heaven? And actually, who rules in heaven? Well, God does. So you probably better not swear by heaven because he rules there. 
oh, well, let's try this. Let's move down a notch. Let's try earth. So God doesn't, he's not, doesn't, his throne isn't on the earth. Well, actually, we'll see in just a second that he alludes to that it is or will be. But no, no, he says, how about heaven? He says, don't swear by heaven. Why? Because it's the footstool of God. God puts his foot on it. He rules it. He, his dominion is exercised from heaven onto the earth. So don't try swearing by the earth, thinking that you're getting away from God's sovereignty and oversight because he rules over earth. It's his footstool. Ah, oh, well, let's, let's do this even one more. Let's say just a city on the earth. Let's just pick a city. And well, I mean, to make the oath have some kind of weight, let's pick the most important city on the face of the earth. And it is, by the way, and will be for all of eternity. But well, I'm, I'm not going there, uh, except to tell you that it's Jerusalem. So I said, let's swear by Jerusalem. And, that, and that'll be weighty, but if we can't do it, it's just a city. It's not God. So we'll say, I, I just swore by the city. I didn't swear by God. He goes, no, nice try on the Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Oh, there's much there. We don't have time this morning. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online And we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.